Good morning again, you guys. Praise God, huh? It's great to be together and to worship the Lord. If you have your Bible with you, please open to John chapter 16. Start at verse 16 here in a minute. If you're new with us, we've, uh, we've been reading through the gospel according to John together. And John was one of Jesus' original 12 disciples. He was one of the closest disciples to Jesus. And, and he is the one who wrote this book in the New Testament. And he says in chapter 20 that the reason that he wrote this book is so that you and I would read it and believe that Jesus is God and that we would have eternal life. In the past several weeks, we've been looking at this conversation that Jesus had with his disciples on his last night on earth, and, and one of the most encouraging things that Jesus has told them is that he will turn their sorrow into joy. He was going to die on the cross the next day, but he promised them that he would also rise from the dead three days later, and that when they saw him risen from the dead, their sorrow would transform into great rejoicing. And this is also what Jesus promises us. For those of us who trust him and follow him today, we, we will, he says, we will have great trouble in this life. We will have suffering. But if we've trusted in him, then that means that we belong to him. And if we belong to him, we will see him after this life. And that future experience of seeing Jesus is going to change us completely. It's going to fill us with this overwhelming, perfect joy that he says it never ends and it can never be taken away from you. He promises to turn our sorrows into everlasting joy. And that is a uniquely Christian idea. This is not a promise that other religions provide or promise. And the reason is because, unlike other religions, the Christian joy is not grounded in circumstances or in our emotions or in our ability to think positively or in our political party or in our spiritual prowess, like we've achieved a certain level of spiritual elitism or in the things that we do that we think will make God happy with us. The Christian joy is different from all these worldly ways of thinking because Christian joy is grounded in the finished event in history in which God accomplished already everything necessary to eternally save everybody who trusts in him. Okay? This is why the gospel of Jesus is called good news news. It's a report of what already happened. It's the news of what Jesus already finished by living perfectly and by dying as our substitute and by rising victoriously. And so at this last supper with his disciples, Jesus assures them that their sorrows, which they will experience on earth, are temporary. But their joy in him will last forever. And in today's passage, now, Jesus tells the disciples and to us how we should interact with him here and now until that day when we do see him face to face. And so we're going to look at that in John 16, and let's ask God to help us as we open his word. 
Dear God, we thank you for this great news that you've accomplished salvation for us. Um, we thank you for leaving heaven, uh, for coming to earth, Jesus, which we celebrated this Christmas season, that you drew near to us so that we could draw near to you. We ask as we open your word that you would, Holy Spirit, please speak to us through your word and please take our minds, take our hearts, take our bodies, take our words and bring them all into conformity with your heart, your mind, your words. Please help us love you. Please help us enjoy you. Please help us to love one another the way that you have loved us. We pray for protection against Satan, and we pray that uh, you would bless those children next door and all the workers as they learn about you as well. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So uh, we'll read uh, John 16, 16 to 33, we're going to look at everything in context, and then we're going to focus on verses 23 to 33. 16, 16. A little while, and you will see me no longer. And again, a little while, and you will see me. So some of his disciples said to one another, What is this that he says to us? A little while, and you will not see me. And again, a little while, and you will see me. And because I'm going to the Father. So they were saying, What does he mean by a little while? We do not know what he's talking about. Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him, so he said to them, is this what you're asking yourselves, what I meant by saying a little while and you will not see me and again a little while and you will see me? Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come, but when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also, you have sorrow now, but I will see you again. And your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. In that day you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Till now you have, you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive, that your joy may be full. I've said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. In that day you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf, for the Father himself loves you, because you've loved me and have believed that I came from God. I came from the Father, and have come into the world, and now I'm leaving the world and going to the Father. His disciples said, Ah, now you're speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. Now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. And Jesus answered them, Do you now believe? Behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come when you will be scattered each to his own home, and will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. I've said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. 
In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Amen. So as we look at this passage, we want to start with the end in mind. So in verse 33, Jesus promises his followers that we will have tribulations in this life. We will have some really miserable circumstances that we have to endure during our time on earth. So Jesus does not promise to any of us an easy life. So don't listen to preachers or teachers that tell you otherwise, okay? Um, Don't listen to anybody who says, you know what, I think Jesus died for you and suffered for you so that you won't have to ever suffer and that he died on the cross so that you can have your best life right now and be free from all your problems and from any heartache. Well, Jesus says if you follow him, then you're not going to have your best life right now because you're still living in a broken world. This is a world that's been warped by sin where tragedies abound and wars never end and poverty abounds. And it's a world where the darkness in people's hearts still run away from the light of God and Jesus. And as Jesus' beloved children, which we are, if we trusted in him, we're going to have trouble in this life. But the good news here, the gospel, which is bigger than that, is that because of what Jesus accomplished and proved in his resurrection, we know that we can believe him when he tells us, take heart. I have overcome the world. What this means is that our brokenness truly is temporary if we trust in Jesus. And this is a room full of broken people. That's reality. But it's temporary if we're in Jesus. If you do not turn to the Lord, your brokenness is not temporary. It also means because of Christ that our brokenness in Christ is redemptive. Okay, that means that God puts our suffering to work for us. He flips it on its head. What Satan meant for evil, what man means for evil, God intended for good. He turns our suffering into work for us so that it will enhance the future joy that we experience with God in heaven. It's incredible. And, and it says that Jesus' power over all of this, the word is overcoming. He overcomes the world. He he breaks and has broken sin's power over us, okay? And instead, he has given us eternal life right now with him, okay? So even in our brokenness, even in our circumstances right now, we have eternal life in Christ. It is both already and not yet. It's already in this life, but it's not yet totally reached its pinnacle of fruition in the face of Christ, which it will. And we know that it'll happen because God finishes every work that he starts. Philippians 1.6. Romans 8 says that God adopts us as his children in Christ. We watched a great video at our community group last week. There's a... There's a uh, uh, It's a great sports broadcaster named Ernie Johnson, and uh, he hosts 
is it TNT uh, basketball. Anyways, you need to watch this video on YouTube, but it's about how the Lord led them to adopt children who could never give anything back to them um, from other countries and, and in suffering and how it's a picture of the gospel of what God's done for us. He's adopted us who can never give anything back to God, but because God is this fountain, he just overflows love and just gives grace to those who don't deserve it. And that's what Romans 8 says, that he's adopted us as his children. And 2 Corinthians 5 says that because we're adopted as his children, because he's given this, uh, us this new identity, that he's also made us into his ambassadors who represent him to the world as we love others, as we share his gospel. And, and because God has made us into his children and into his ambassadors through Christ, what this means is we can now enter into his presence confidently, okay? As his kids, we enter God's presence confidently. I don't know what your dad was like, what your mom was like. None of our parents were perfect, but we know that God is perfect, and God is, he does not, <laughs> we've seen it in Christ. Even when the disciples say, you guys, you little kids, get away. He doesn't have time for you. Jesus is like, what are you talking about? Let him come over here. This is our God. He welcomes us into his presence. He wants us to, to come to him, and he, and, he, and he tells us to come confidently to him. Because he has made us his ambassadors, what it means is now we can take this good news of Jesus confidently to the world. Okay? So as his children, we go to God confidently. As his ambassadors, we go to the world confidently because Jesus has overcome the power of the world. This is what he says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. All authority over people, spirits, this world, everything. I mean, all authority over it all. And so this is what we know. When God says in his word that he has a mission that he's gonna complete through us, his church, which is to take the gospel to the ends of the world and to love others as we do that, as we love him, and when God says that he has a joy for us that he is going to complete in us, then we can confidently and rightly pursue his mission and rightly pursue our joy at the same time. Because Jesus is the king. He's the one who wants it. And so we do what he says. Isn't that awesome? We have a king who says, I want joy for you. I want joy for you. So pursue that in me. Okay, now all of these realities provide the framework for us to understand what Jesus tells the disciples in this passage. Let's look at verse 22 and the first part of verse 23. Jesus says, So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. In that day you will ask nothing of me. So he's saying that on the day when the disciples would see him back from the dead, they would have great joy, and he says that they would ask nothing of him. So in other words, all of their questions about Jesus that they have, about his death, about his resurrection, about him, is he the Messiah or not, all of that would be answered when they saw Jesus in his glory back from the dead. There would be no more questions. He'd be like, I get it. <laughs> okay. 
And in the days after Jesus' resurrection, we read that uh, the disciples would continue to understand more and more because Jesus would take time, some time on earth, to teach them how all of the scriptures, all of the Bible, points to him as the Messiah, as the Savior of the world. The one mediator between God and man. And I'm going to read this verse because it kind of fits into the context of what we're going to read today. Uh, I think it's 1 Timothy 2, 5. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. So how many mediators are there between God and men? How many? There's one. Okay. And that's because Jesus is God. So the way to get to God is through God. It's not by talking to your neighbor. It's not to praying to anybody else. It's you go through the man. You go through God to get to God. And Jesus explained to the disciples how his, his work on the cross made him, or revealed that he already was the mediator. And that through that, he was ushering in this entire new chapter of God's work in the world when the Holy Spirit would come and he'd be working through them in this powerful new way. And, and what that meant for the disciples and for us is that they would even approach God in a new way. They would pray to God in a new way. And he talks about this in verses 23 to 24. He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now, you have asked nothing in my name. Ask, and you will receive, that your joy may be full. So while the disciples were with Jesus during his public ministry, remember they walked with him and followed him around for three years, they never prayed to God during that time and asked him to do anything in Jesus' name. That wasn't a phrase they tacked on, okay? And the reality that Jesus was their mediator with God the Father, had not yet transformed their prayer lives. But now this is the fourth time, third or fourth time here at his Last Supper that we read that Jesus tells the disciples, he commands us, pray in my name. Ask me. Ask the Father. Pray in my name. And the reason he tells us this over and over again, to pray must be because prayer is important for him and for us. And it is through prayer that God is glorified in our lives in a way that we can't fully comprehend. And it is through prayer that God makes us more joyful. And that's exactly what verse 24 says. We should pray, why? So that your joy may be full. <laughs> so Jesus wants us to ask God to do great things in our lives and in this world with his overcoming power that can do it. This power that breaks sin and it gives life. Now, if you don't know how to say fancy prayers with big words and a lot of formality, then that's a good thing, okay? Because Jesus doesn't care about that. He cares about your heart. He cares about the condition of your heart, the motives of your heart. Man looks at the outside, God looks at the heart. And he commands us to pray when we pray. This is what he says. This is what I want you to do. Come to me with humble hearts. Pray to me with whatever words you know how to pray. But pray in my name. 
We've talked about this before, but we're going to talk about it again because Jesus is talking about it again. Remember that praying in Jesus' name means more than just saying at the end of our prayers, in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Okay? That's certainly a good thing to say if you mean it. But he tells us to pray to God, the Father, in his name because it signifies at least three things. First, praying in Jesus' name signifies that we believe in Jesus. Okay? It's a... It's, a, uh, it's an indicator of our faith in Jesus. So we pray to God in Jesus' name because we believe that Jesus is the one and only mediator who makes our prayers acceptable to God. So when we pray, we're praying, believing Jesus is the mediator for me here. We, we approach God when we pray humbly at the same time because yes, God is our, our greatest friend, but at the same time, we believe he is a holy God. He is to be greatly respected and revered, revered among all of his creation. And, and we believe that had God not reached out to us first, had he not provided his son Jesus as the sacrifice that makes us acceptable to him, then we couldn't even come to him. We could not come into God's presence because of our sin. And some of you in your college group, are, you're getting a picture of this in the Old Testament as you see all of the rules and restrictions for God's people as they wanted to enter God and talk to God through the tabernacle, you see what it required, the purity it required to go, right? It required a sacrifice. And we have that sacrifice in Jesus Christ once and for all. Pastor Richard Phillips tells the story of a soldier during the Civil War there was a Union soldier with a great personal need who went to the White House to see the president during the Civil War. And the secretaries refused to interrupt the nation's chief executive to deal with a personal problem. He was busy, obviously. The Civil War is going on. So the soldier sat in a hallway. He just began to cry. And then a little boy came down the hall and upon seeing this soldier, he asked him what, what he was crying for. And he said, I, I really need to see the president, he explained. But I can't get into him. And when he heard that, the little boy took the soldier by the hand and he, he walked him past the secretary's desk and past the armed guards and then down another hallway all the way back to that oval-shaped office room where Abraham Lincoln was working and the president lifted up and said, his head and he said, my son, what can I do for you? And the little boy said, this soldier needs to speak to you, daddy. This is what Jesus does for you and me every time we pray to God. Jesus is our mediator who carries us into the throne room of God and acts as our mediator. Jesus reminds us we're no longer enemies of God. We are God's dearly beloved children now. Because God initiated it, because he loves us. He sent his son to die for us, and the Holy Spirit made us new. And so we pray in Jesus' name because we believe that Jesus is God and that he is this one mediator between God and man. He is God. The way to God is through God. And we believe that all of his words are true and we trust in Jesus, that he's our Lord and that he's our Savior. 
So when we pray in Jesus' name, we're indicating that we believe in Jesus. And second, praying in Jesus' name signifies that we want to see Jesus glorified. We do. We want to see him worshipped on earth as he is in heaven. We want the world to adore Jesus. We want the world to worship God the way that he deserves to be adored and worshipped. We want the situations in our lives to turn out in a way that will bring God maximum glory. And at the same time, this is the cool thing, at the same time, God, in this passage, it, said, it says is working for our joy. So now we can pray that God would give us more joy as simultaneously he works out his glory in our lives and in this world. They go hand in hand together. Do our prayers, when you and I pray, do our prayers reflect a desire to see Jesus worshipped? Do our prayers reflect a desire to see Jesus' name made famous and not our own names? We pray in Jesus' name because we want to see Jesus worshipped and glorified on earth as he is in heaven. And third, praying in Jesus' name signifies that uh, we submit to God's sovereign will. We believe that God is not a genie in a bottle who gives us anything and everything we ask. Instead, we, we believe that God is sovereign. He's in, he's in all control, okay? He, he has a perfect plan. He is perfectly wise. And so we submit our requests to him, and we ask him to do what he knows is best for his glory and for our joy at the same time. And as a result, when we pray that way, God doesn't always do things the way we think he should or as fast as we would like him to, right? But we're talking to God, and God sees much more than we do. And he knows so much more than we do about what has been, what's going on right now, what's going to happen, and what could happen. And his love is so much greater than ours. And so we entrust ourselves to God, and we pray in his name. We submit to whatever he knows is best. That's hard to do sometimes, isn't it? (laughs) So praying to God in Jesus' name means that uh, we believe Jesus is, is God He's the mediator. We believe that, uh, uh, it also means, that, sorry, that we want to see him glorified, and it means that we are submitting to his sovereign will. That's what it means when we pray in Jesus' name. And, and the fact that Jesus commands us to pray to God tells us, again, that prayer is crucial, okay? So this isn't this optional thing. Like, do this if you, you know, ever make time for it. He's saying, if you're abiding in me, that means that I talk to you and you talk to me. That means we're in a friendship, we're in a relationship. And this prayer life that we are all growing in together and none of us has mastered is crucial for us both as God's children and as his ambassadors as we take the gospel to the world. Many of you might know the the acronym ACTS, Many of you heard that. Some of you haven't, though. A-C-T-S. And it's a, a simple tool that can help us pray to God. 
something to remember. A stands for, when we're praying, it stands for adore God. It's worship and adore God when you talk to him. Remember who he is. Remember who you're talking to. Remember what great things he has done. Worship him and adore him. C stands for confess your sins. We need to confess to God the ways that we've sinned against him. Because even though our sins, they don't kick us out of God's family, if we're part of God's family, they, they, our sins can really hurt our fellowship with God. And we need to apologize to God for the way that we've disobeyed his words, the way that we've hurt other people. And, and if, we, if we love God, then we're going to be remorseful. There will be a genuine remorsefulness about disobeying him. And so we confess that to God, and, and this is also the right time again where we preach the gospel to ourselves. We celebrate as we pray that Jesus promises to restore us, like he did to Peter, to unite us, or to, to sorry, to purify us when we confess our sins to him, okay? God is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and purify us of all unrighteousness. And then the T in Acts stands for thank God. Every good and perfect gift, New Testament says, is from God. And so it's important for us to stop and thank God for those gifts. And hopefully this past week, you spent time thanking God, because it's Thanksgiving week. But scripture tells us uh, that by thanking God, it rejuvenates our heart. It rejuvenates our heart with gladness. And that in praying, God is rightfully honored when we pray with thanksgiving. And then when God answers our prayers, right, what do we do? We thank him. Instead of just, okay, I got another one to fill the slot, another prayer request in my, the queue, of 20 prayer requests. It's like, celebrate it. I don't know about you, but one of the areas I need to work on in my life is celebrating answered prayer. I need to celebrate God. One of the things I love, I'm reading through the Old Testament, you see that God's people, the the Jews, were a celebrating people. They had intentional into their calendar, we're going to party here, 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 and here, and here. Okay? Good party. We need to do that, though. We need to celebrate God. And not just take every answered prayer for granted. But take time. Take time to, to worship God. Go get some ice cream together. Do something fun. What he's doing. And then the S stands for share your requests. Share with God what's on your heart, what's keeping you down, what you need help with, what you'd like to see him do. And scripture tells us to pray about everything. So that means there's nothing in our life. What that means is, think about this, there's nothing in our lives unimportant to God. That's why he says pray about everything because all of it's important to me. I can tell you for a fact, I have found car keys and fixed garbage disposals because God answered my prayers, okay? I can tell you more about that later. And I'm sure you guys have all sorts of stories too. But little things that I didn't even think. I've gotten home safely from trips in cars I should not have gotten home in because I prayed about it. And God cares about us. He helps us in little ways. And he tells us to give him 
our problems and to trust him with them. So adore, confess, thank, and share. That's the ACTS acronym. It's obviously not the only way to pray, but it does help balance our conversations with God. And it's a helpful way for us to teach future generations how to pray too. <clears throat> so in addition to praying to God in order to grow closer to him on this personal level and because we need his help as his missionaries and ambassadors to the world, um, we see that prayer is one of the central channels through which God has chosen to release his power in the world, okay? Now what this means is that God is not restricted to our prayers, okay? which I have heard some teachers say that we are, in a sense, holding God back from doing what he really wants to do because we're not giving him permission to do those things. Because he values our will so much that unless we say the word, he won't answer. That's not what the Bible says. That's not the Bible's picture of God. God is all-powerful, and he does whatever he wants, whenever he wants but according to his plan and his infinite wisdom, he often chooses to work in our world in response to the prayers that we pray in Jesus' name. And so we pray to him, and we ask him to do those things that he says in Scripture that he loves to do and that he wants to do. And we believe that he can do those things because he's God. He's overcome the world. He's broken the power of sin. He... He can do whatever he wants. And so when we pray, we often start by praying for ourselves. You know, if we think about the layers of prayer, we pray for ourselves, which is good to do. It's, um, we, we ask God to help us turn from our sins. We ask him to help us stand firm in what we're going through, to stand firm in our faith. We ask him to give us more joy and more peace. We ask him to help us value and worship him the way he deserves to be valued and worshiped. And then we pray for the other Christians in our church. You read the New Testament, it talks a lot about praying for other Christians. We need to pray for each other because we're all going through different stuff. So we pray that Jesus and his gospel would, would be the central focus of our families here, of our homes we pray that God would bind us together in Christian love. That uh, in our community groups and the different ministries here, his spirit would work in a way that reflects the unity we, that we have in Christ. We pray that God would use us to love our neighbors well, right? And, our, and I'm talking about our immediate neighbors on our street or our road. We, we ask God to give us opportunities to and help me point this person to you somehow. Help me to love them. Help me to pray for them. I don't know, Lord, just open a door for me with them. We pray that God would help us with our jobs, right? <laughs> that he would use us where we work. If you're a student, your job is school right now. So you pray that God would use you at your school. We pray that he would give you boldness to stand up, say, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. <laughs> that he would give you courage to persevere. That's what Jesus has been talking about in John 
13 to 17 here. And we pray for our country. We pray for all the nations and people groups of the world. We pray for our missionaries who have sacrificed much to minister in those places. We pray that in everything, God would work in powerful ways. We've got to have a big view of God. We pray that he would do miracles that we would never think of. That he would open the eyes of the spiritually blind. That he would free the people we know and the people we don't from their bondage to sin. That he would free us from sinful habits we have in our life because he can do it. We pray that he would get the glory for all of it, right? We need prayer for ourselves and for our others, and it, it definitely can seem overwhelming at times. Some of you are really good at it, and I, my guess is you're really good at it because you've done it a lot. And, and some of us are just rookies, right? It's just like, and I'm thankful God doesn't have this spiritual caste system, okay? It doesn't exist. This is what we do. We say, we come to God humbly and we start with one sentence. Say, Lord, I need you today. And then you say another sentence. And then you say another sentence. It starts with one sentence. That's a good place to start. Prayer is a gift from God because, this passage says, because God wants joy for you. And now Jesus continues to encourage his disciples in verses 25 to 28. He says, I've said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. In that day you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf, for the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. I came from the Father and have come into the world, and now I'm leaving the world and going to the Father. So until now, Jesus, he says, he's been talking to the disciples in a way that he knew would be most helpful for them. He's been using a lot of figures of speech and parables. He's only been telling them as much information as he knew they could handle. But after his resurrection, Jesus would speak much more plainly with them because they'd be ready for more depth at that time. And, and that's also when they would really understand why they needed to pray in Jesus' name. This is the glorified risen Christ in whose name we're praying. And then in verse 26, Jesus tells the disciples that even though they should pray in his name, it's not like Jesus takes their prayer requests and walks them into the Father's throne room and reads their requests to the Father. Because he wants us to understand, because he, Jesus, has broken the barrier of sin that separated us from the Father, what it means now is that Jesus has brought us into the throne room to live with the Father at his feet so that God always hears our prayers. We're with God because Jesus brings us to him. And then in verse 27, Jesus tells us why God gave his son Jesus uh, to be our mediator. He says, for or because the Father himself loves you. Oh, that's good. Okay? The Father loves you. This is true when you're reading the Old Testament and the New Testament. 
The Father loves you. He's not the mean dad, and Jesus is the nice son who tries to, uh, to, to make him happy, okay? Yes, the Father has wrath towards sin, and yes, Jesus appeased the Father's wrath, but that's because the Father sent the Son to die for us, because he loved us. This is great news. God the Father loved us when we didn't give a rip about him. He sent Jesus to die for us when we didn't even want Jesus. I don't want the light. I want to be in the dark. And now the Father welcomes us into his presence because he took our, away our sin with the blood of his own son. This is how much the Father loves us. And here in verse 27, Jesus is specifically describing the Father's love for his church. Okay? Yes, God loved his people before he created them. And he determined to save them before they ever wanted him. And here we also read that the Father loves us because we've loved him back. And we believe that Jesus is the Son, which is the evidence that we are his. We're his sheep. We know his voice. And he knows us. And Jesus verifies this about himself in verse 28. He says, I came from the Father and have come into the world. Now I'm leaving the world and going to the Father. And so... The Father loves, with a special love, everybody who believes this, okay? Everyone who believes that this is true, that Jesus is God's Son who came from heaven, that he lived, died, rose again, that he did things in this world that scientists in this world say are crazy, unless they're Christians, not Christian scientists like the religion, but unless they're saved, I'll just say saved scientists, Okay? Do you believe that Jesus physically did the impossible and ascended into heaven until, and there was a crowd of 500 there and until the people couldn't see him anymore? And now he's in heaven at the right hand of God the Father, seated because his work is finished. Do you believe it? Okay. When Jesus says this, okay, when he makes it clearer, we read in verse 29 to 30, his disciples say, ah, now you're speaking plainly, not using figurative speech. Now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe you came from God. So the disciples are telling Jesus now that now we know you're from God because you're finally starting to speak in a way that we understand. It's after three years. But Jesus does not need their affirmation that he is God. He does not need your affirmation or my affirmation. Well, I have done a lot of research, and I have scientifically proven that God is real. So good job, God. He doesn't need your affirmation, okay? You answer to him. You don't, right? He doesn't answer to us. Those are good things, right? Certainly the Christian faith is an, an intelligent faith, and we're thinking people. But God doesn't need our, our affirmation. We need to be known by him. <laughs> we need to be saved by him. Jesus knows that he's God, and praise God, he does, because that's the hope of our salvation. And in fact, the only reason that any of us believe that he is God is because God graciously revealed it to us. Can't even take credit for that. So in verses 31 to 32, Jesus answered him, do you now believe? Behold, the hour is coming, indeed it has come, when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. 
So even though the disciples say now, we truly believe you, we're, we totally got your back, Jesus says, you don't have my back. You're gonna abandon me really soon. Jesus would be alone. He would accomplish our salvation without any of our support or help. He doesn't need humanity's help to save humanity. Our salvation is because of Jesus' work alone. But Jesus says that even though we would abandon him, his father wouldn't. His father would be with him all the way to the cross. And he says in verse 33, I've said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I've overcome the world. So what do we learn about Jesus, our God, in this passage? He wants joy for us, fullness of joy, and he wants peace for us, real peace. The reason that he told the disciples all these things is because he wants these disciples who abandoned him to have his peace. He wanted his disciples to know that no matter what evil things would happen to them or to him, he was going to go to the cross, he was going to die, and he was going to rise again. And he was doing that so that now we, who belong to Christ, who trust in him, have his peace, have his eternal life, have his eternal joy. See, there's a transaction. He gets the wrath. He gets abandoned. He suffers. We get life. We get joy. We get peace. That's what he did on the cross for us because the Father, the Son, and the Spirit love us. Jesus does not promise us a life without trouble. He promises us the opposite, but he tells us to take heart because he's overcome all of it. And he's conquered already every reason we would ever have to be stressed and anxious and defeated. He is in control. And so, as a result, we trust in him, we pray in his name, we ask him for help, we put our joy in him, in his resurrection life, in his power, we receive his peace because he's in control. So for you and me, this, this, let's abide in this. This is so good. Let's abide in these truths. Let's abide in Jesus and in his word and in his love. And let's continue to thank him for this unshakable joy, which is unshakable because that event doesn't get undone. The work is finished on the cross. He's risen. He's alive, period. And he's not dying again. Let's thank him for this and let's thank him for the peace that he gives us no matter what our circumstances are. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for this good news that is from you and is by you. These truths, God, in this passage that are just really honestly hard for our minds to comprehend, that the Father loves us, that you died for us, that the Spirit made us new, that you invite us to come into your holy presence. You want us to talk to you, draw near to you, and to know that we are beloved in your sight because of Jesus. We thank you for that and pray that we would live into this, and we also pray, God, that you would help us to be your ambassadors and missionaries in this world.
to Stanwood and Camano and Arlington and Mount Vernon and Boeing and Everett and all these places around us where we live and work. Please help us to shine your light, to love others and point people to you because that's where the joy is, that's where the life is, that's where our purpose is. We pray all this in Jesus' name, amen.